Welcome to the Lentil Intervention Podcast, talking all things movement, whole food nutrition and environmental wellness with your hosts, Ben and Emma. Hello everybody, my name is Ben Eidelberg. And I'm Emma Strutt. And welcome to Season 2's Episode 24. As always, bit of admin, if you're listening to this on a podcast app, please make sure you hit the subscribe button and once you finish listening, share it with your friends and family. And as well... Uh, if you do find our content interesting and inspiring, please do buy us a coffee. All the details on our website. Now, following on from a very, very recent uh, guest, Professor Ian Shaw, and a very particular conversation around estrogen mimicking effects of soy, we thought we needed to go a little bit deeper into that, and we have a fascinating guest on that. All right, so today we are extremely lucky to have an internationally recognized soy expert joining us for a chat, Dr. Mark Messina. Mark is executive director of the Soy Nutrition Institute in the US, is an adjunct associate professor at Loma Linda University, and is co-owner of Nutrition Matters, Inc. Mark is a former program director with the National Cancer Institute and has spent the last 30 years researching the health effects of soy foods and soy isoflavins. So we're in for a treat today with the wisdom that Mark brings to the table on this very hot topic. Dr. Messina, thank you for joining us. Oh, thank you for inviting me. It's a pleasure. Now, as always, with all our guests, we like to get to know a little bit about them, their, their background and in particular with yourself, how and why did you get down the path into a very specific topic that is soy? Well, I think it's actually an interesting path that I took because I became a vegetarian in 1972 because my martial arts instructor said my martial arts would improve if I became a vegetarian. Now, I think that has no scientific basis, but that was long before I had any formal education in nutrition. Nevertheless, I became a vegetarian. Fast forward about 15 years, and I was working for the National Cancer Institute, and my responsibility there was to identify areas in the cancer prevention field that look promising. And then I went through a process to try to make funding available for research in that area. In 1989, uh, uh, a future colleague of mine presented some research showing that soybeans may prevent the development of breast cancer. The head of the National Cancer Institute, this is in the States, of course, the head of the NCI wrote the branch I was working in a note asking if we were doing anything with soy because he heard this very interesting presentation about soybeans preventing the development of breast cancer. The secretary in the branch saw the note, saw the memo, and she knew that I ate soy because I was a vegetarian. So she said, why don't you do something in this area? And I said, well, that seems pretty intriguing. And within about six months, I had organized a workshop, brought together about 12 experts in the soy area. And the findings from that workshop led to the National Cancer Institute funding research looking at the role that soy may have in cancer prevention and treatment. So I became fascinated with soy. I was eating soy as part of my vegetarian diet, but now I became interested in it from a professional perspective. And I soon learned that soy may not only help to prevent the development of various types of cancers, but there was intriguing evidence that it could reduce risk of heart disease and osteoporosis, maybe alleviate hot flashes, and so after a few more years working at the National Cancer Institute, I decided to go off on my own because all I really wanted to do was to focus on soy. And about 30 years later, I'm still doing it. Yeah. So, I mean, soy foods, they're traditional staples in certain Asian diets. Um, as you mentioned, vegetarians consume it as a staple as well. Um, they've been really thoroughly researched for the last 30 years in regards to health, but you know, they continue to be dogged by myths and misinformation. So, Mike, if you don't mind explaining why is this? Why did all this controversy start in the first place? And, and just on that, actually, when I was reading one of your recent papers, I was really surprised to see 
that the controversy has some roots in Australia. Yes, yes. So, well, first of all, the reason for the controversy is because soy is a uniquely rich source of a group of naturally occurring compounds called isoflavones. And isoflavones are commonly classified as uh, phytoestrogens or plant estrogens. And most of the research that has taken place over the past 30 years has focused on these isoflavones and their potential health benefits. But of course, like any compound and like the hormone estrogen, it makes sense to ask whether there are any adverse effects. Uh, because we know that estrogen increases risk of certain types of cancers and can increase blood clot formation. So I think it's perfectly reasonable that concerns have been raised. Fortunately, and obviously we'll cover all this, fortunately, when you look at the human data, you see that soy is perfectly safe. And I would say with the exception of those who are allergic to soy, and that's about three adults out of every 1,000, the evidence is very clear that, that soy foods are safe. But there are about 40,000 scientific papers on soy. Um, there are about 2,000 papers, scientific papers published each year that relate to soy. So if you cherry pick the data, it's actually easy to make a very convincing case uh, that soy may be harmful. Now, I'm not all suggesting that people that are raising these concerns um, are doing so for um, you know, unjustified reasons. I mean, we could go through the literature with breast cancer, uh, you know, puberty onset, and, and hopefully we'll, we'll have time to do that. Um, what I am saying, though, is that the concerns are primarily based on the results of animal studies. And with a lot of compounds um, that are um, claimed to have adverse effects, you're not actually able to do clinical trials. That's not the case with soy because there's literally been hundreds of clinical trials. These are intervention studies where you might feed one group soy or the isoflavones and another group a, a different type of food, say dairy products or a placebo. So we have hundreds of clinical studies that we can draw upon to base our conclusions about health effects. And then we have lots and lots of observational studies. And I know this is a long-winded answer, so I apologize, but but you mentioned Australia, and that's true. The, the controversy actually started in New Zealand, in Australia, back in the early 1990s. Um, few people realize this because it happened so long ago, but a parrot breeder in New Zealand claimed that his birds died because there was soy in the bird feed. This led him to... Uh, commission is too strong of a word, to commission a report on soy. The person who wrote the report, and it wasn't published, it wasn't a very sophisticated report, identified a number of anti-nutrients in soybeans. And this really led to the soy controversy back in the mid-1990s. Uh, and it really focused on soy infant formula more than anything else. And that's understandable because um, if infants are using soy formula, which has been around for many, many decades, but if infants are using soy formula, they're going to be exposed to a large amount of isoflavones. And this is a very sensitive period of life. So I think it was reasonable that these concerns were raised. But again, if you look at the clinical studies, uh, they're very supportive of safety. So the uh, controversy started in Australia. And then one um, sort of an activist group in the U.S. Um, took the lead role and wrote many, many articles about the harmful effects of soy. They were not uh, scientifically grounded. There were a lot of, I'll just say, misstatements. And I will acknowledge that even when it was pointed out to them that the information they were conveying was incorrect, they still continued to convey that misinformation. But they were very influential and they had, to this day, they've had a huge impact on the perception of soy. That's not to say that there weren't some scientific developments that arose that did raise legitimate questions about soy. That was mostly in beginning in the uh, late 1990s, where uh, a certain type of animal model 
raised concern that soy may actually worsen the prognosis of women with breast cancer. And that was um, had a huge impact on the perception of soy and even the, the science, uh, the research, because a lot of the interest in soy early on, especially, was because it was thought that soy may reduce the risk of developing breast cancer. And here was animal research suggesting that soy may actually worsen the prognosis of breast cancer patients. And it wasn't for about another decade that research began to be published showing not only that soy was safe for women with breast cancer, but research was published suggesting that women who consumed soy after a diagnosis of breast cancer were actually less likely to suffer a recurrence of their disease of their disease or to die from their disease. It's interesting the timing because you talk a lot about um, a lot of the myths that started around the 90s but and please correct me if I'm wrong but my you know for a lot of us a popular book that that a lot of our listeners and em and I have read is is the China study by Dr. T Colin Campbell and he makes uh, mention of some of the, the epidemiological studies that showed that the Asian populations that consumed more soy products had lower rates of breast cancer. So that wasn't per se clinical studies, but I guess there was already a correlation shown that you know populations very high consumption of soy and didn't seem to have a lot of those uh, health effects that were perceived to be an issue. So that seemed to be what around the seventies, perhaps even eighties, that that was coming out. Yeah, the the China study came out actually when I was at the National Cancer Institute. So in in the late nineteen eighties, it was it was started before that. But um, and at the time, it was it was heralded as an important study. I, to be perfectly honest, I don't put a lot of stock in the China study. Um, and the important question is not whether countries that consume soy have lower rates of breast cancer. I mean, that's an interesting observation and it, can, it, it generates a hypothesis which you can test through more, ro ro more robust means than just looking at these sort of cross-country comparisons. What's, what's more informative is asking whether women in China or Japan who consume soy have less breast cancer than women in those countries who don't consume soy. And um, you really can only do those kind of studies in Japan and China, soy food consuming countries. And then you can look at vegetarians in you know, the uh, Epic Oxford study in England and then the Adventist Health study in the United States because they include large numbers of vegetarians. If you look at a general population in Australia or in the United States, soy consumption is relatively low. And the other concern is that if you're eating tofu, even though tofu is, has become increasingly mainstream, but if you're eating tofu and drinking soy milk on a regular basis, there's a decent chance that you're going to be um, doing other things that promote health. You may be exercising more, going to the doctor more often. And although epidemiologists try to control for all those variables, it's very, very difficult to do that. So I like the Asian studies more because if you're eating soy in Asia, it, it doesn't Asia it doesn't really make you unique or very different from from your neighbor. Now the concern there is epidemiologists don't like to um, extrapolate from one culture to another. And as long as we're on the subject of breast cancer, I do think that soy reduces breast cancer risk, but I'm pretty convinced that in order for soy to reduce breast cancer, it needs to be consumed during childhood and or during the teenage years. And that's a very important point. And that's why I strongly recommend that all girls consume uh, at least one serving of soy per day. The observational studies suggest one serving per day is associated with a pretty significant reduction in breast cancer risk. Now, these are observational studies, aren't designed to show cause and effect, but because uh, soy is a very nutritious food. There's no downside to it. Uh, I feel really 
good about recommending that girls consume one soy, one serving per day because of the potential benefit many years later. Yeah, so safe as far as breast cancer risk goes, safe for breast cancer survivors as well, even if they're estrogen positive yeah, yeah. Um, so the the observation. So the, we, there's two forms of data. The observational studies, where again they in the the most I think impressive results come from a statistical analysis of five studies involving over 11,000 women with breast cancer, and it showed that about a 16% reduction in recurrence and a 24% reduction in survival for those women who consumed soy after a diagnosis of their, their disease. Again, that's observational data. If you look at the clinical studies, the actual intervention studies, which of course carry the most weight within the scientific community, those studies are completely supportive of safety. Now they do not show benefit, but they show safety. So if you take healthy women or women at risk of breast cancer or even breast cancer patients and give them large amounts of soy, either in the form of soy foods or the isoflavone, the phytoestrogen supplements, you see no adverse effects on breast tissue. And that was the conclusion of the German Research Foundation and the European Food Safety Authority. So the clinical studies are supportive of safety. The observational studies are supportive of, of benefit. So in my opinion, that controversy has uh, been fully refuted. And you start to see that in just sort of social media and internet. You see a lot more study, um, a lot more blog posts and just other types of, of social media, indi you know, highlighting these studies. Whereas 10 years ago, that, that certainly wasn't the case. I think the other big concern or, and sort of myth, I'll say, is the idea that soy feminizes men. And that's one that I'm personally and professionally interested in because I consume at least two servings of soy on a daily basis. Yeah, so on that, some men do worry that consuming the phytoestrogens might reduce their testosterone levels or, you know, make them need a training bra, for example. Um, and I think we can kind of thank Men's Health Magazine a little bit for perpetuating that thinking. So any truth to this? Yeah, there is truth to it. The truth is that men's health is probably, <laughs> is certainly more, this is, so this is a very popular magazine in the U.S. And they, they published a, just a terrible, irresponsible um, article in 2009. Uh, and they asked, it was on soy, of course, and they asked whether soy undermines everything it means to be male. And um, I, I will note that uh, I, I called the editor after that article was published and I said, you didn't interview any soy experts and we were butting heads. And finally, I don't want to say it was the editor. I'm not sure it could have been an assistant editor, but the person I was talking to for Men's Health said, you know, we have to come out with an article every single month, you know, an exciting article every single month. And I think that's happens with nutrition. A lot of times the you know, the sort of media coverage is a lot sexier than the, the, the science dictates. In any event, I will give them credit because in 2015, so like six years later, they said they probably exaggerated the findings. And in 2018, they had an article about tofu being the new king of protein. And in 2019, they actually apologized very very short, you know, very briefly, but apologize for their take on on soy. But, you know, I understand why men would be uh, a little freaked out about soy, because obviously estrogen is the female reproductive hormone. You associate estrogen with women and soy isoflavones are classified as phytoestrogens. So I think early on, the scientific community did not do a good job differentiating the isoflavones from estrogen. And, and sometimes they can have effects opposite to estrogen. A lot of times they're not gonna have any effects in tissues that are affected by the hormone estrogen. But what you really need to do is the clinical studies, and they're not that hard to do, they're a little expensive, and just feed soy to men and see what happens to testosterone levels. And so in 2010, I was part of a statistical analysis, a meta-analysis, looking at the clinical trial data, and we showed very clearly there were over 30 studies that soy did not lower testosterone levels in men. 
And then just, I guess it was last year, we published an update to that analysis. So now there were 40 studies, almost 2,000 men in these clinical trials, no effect on testosterone levels, and also no effect on estrogen levels. And uh, your listeners may not realize that men make estrogen as well as women do. It's important for men. And older men actually make more estrogen than older women do. So we looked at both testosterone and estrogen, and there were no effects on either uh, hormone. Uh, three clinical studies have shown no effects of soy on sperm or semen parameters. And also, we know that soy is a good protein if you want to build muscle in response to weightlifting, resistance exercise training. There was a meta-analysis published a couple of years ago now, and it showed that soy performed as well as whey protein, which is part of milk protein, and performed as well as uh, other animal proteins. There were these um, short-term studies, acute studies, that looked at muscle protein synthesis just over a four-hour period. Those studies showed that soy did not perform that well, but muscle protein synthesis goes on for a lot more than four hours after you exercise. So what you really need to do is look at the long-term studies, you know, 10, 12 weeks, and look at not muscle protein synthesis, but actually gains in muscle mass and strength. And those studies show that soy performs just as well as whey protein. And I think one of the popularities of whey protein is when you say, when you look at the effects, say four hours post-exercise is because it's the, uh, stand to be corrected, but the quickest absorbing. So hence its popularity. But with, with other proteins like soy, perhaps it just takes longer to absorb, but the benefits are still there. And like you say, it's not worse or inferior to other proteins. It's as beneficial. It doesn't have to be better, but it's as beneficial. But on that point, are we talking about you know protein uh, isolate, so soy isolate, or are there more benefits to have whole food as such? So we're consuming all the the actual uh, phytonutrients as well and the fiber, etc. Uh, you know, is there a difference between the two? Yeah. So I'll comment on that, but first let me say that the the reason there was so much focus on whey was because it's really high in leucine, which is uh, an essential amino acid. It's called a branch chain amino acid. And that does seem to be an important trigger for muscle protein synthesis. Most proteins like soy are about 8% leucine. You know, whey is, God, you know, depending on the, on the, the source of whey, but it can be 12%, 13% leucine. So if leucine is important, then whey is going to be a very important protein for building muscle. But again, that's a, that, is an interesting theory, but what matters is the clinical studies and looking at gains in muscle mass and strength. And those those really now indicate that type of protein is probably not nearly as important as once hypothesized or once thought. And it's really the amount of protein that that is critical for, for gains in muscle mass and strength. And I would say, and I'm not an expert in the area, but people wanting to bulk up probably need twice as much protein as the general population. So in the States and most places around the world, the uh, RDA is 0.8 grams per kilogram body weight. So for people wanting to bulk up, um, it's about 1.6 grams per kilogram body weight. And I, I'm actually a big supporter of, of protein. I, I think you know, the data aren't definitive by any means, but I'm I'm an older man, I'm 68, and um, I, I think it's really important for overall health to maintain your muscle mass as much as possible. Because when you look at, oh, it's so depressing, don't get old. No, no there's, there's some benefits to get to aging for sure, but uh, one of them is not muscle mass. Because when you look at what happens in in men and women, 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, the amount of muscle mass is is dramatic. And um, same thing with strength. The decrease in strength is even greater. So you want to keep as much muscle mass as as possible. So I, I do eat a fairly high protein diet and, and I weight lift to, to try to keep my muscle mass. So, so the clinical studies use mostly the isolated protein in powder form. And the reason for that is because it's easier to incorporate into the diet. And you can give a, you know, control a powdered form of like 
dairy protein, milk protein and in a powder form, and then compare that with, with the soy protein. So it's easier to get larger amounts into the diet and it's less disruptive to the diet than it would be if you were eating tofu. And to uh, and also it's easier to, easier to blind the subjects so they may not know which protein they're consuming. Whereas you're, if you're giving tofu, you know it's hard to come up with the control protein protein for that. So most of the studies, the clinical studies, have intervened with either the protein or the isoflavone supplement, sort of in, in pill or tablet form. The observational studies mostly are informative about soy foods because the observational studies come from, um, you know, free-leaving populations in Japan and China, and they're they're not consuming soy protein isolate; they're consuming uh, tofu. In terms of the isolates and the supplements and the whole foods, just like any nutritionist would recommend apples over apple juice you know, certainly apple juice over apple pie, um, you know, I recommend whole soy foods, uh, you know, edamame, soy nuts, uh, tempeh, tofu, it's not exactly a whole food, um, soy milk made from whole soybeans. But on <clears throat> from an experimental perspective, I'm, it's, it's very difficult to use those foods. Also, I eat a lot of um, more of the processed soy. I eat a lot of soy burgers. Um, because they are so convenient. And um, my, I have no cooking skills. Fortunately, my wife is uh, not only a vegan expert, she's a dietitian, master's degree. She loves to cook. So we have a good arrangement there. But, you know, for for, for lunch, I'll, I'll, it's, it's very often that I'm going to have like a soy burger um, because it takes like one minute and three seconds and I'm, and I'm ready to eat. So, um you know, I'm, I think all these foods fit into the diet. Obviously, the emphasis should be on the, the whole foods as much as possible. But those other foods are very convenient. And also, I love the new generation of not just soy burgers, but all of the, the plant burgers, because I think it makes it easier for omnivores to begin to adopt the more plant-based diet. Because, you know, a soy burger is not competing with a kale salad you know it's it's a meat it's meat versus a soy burger and in my opinion um those the new generation taste fantastic and the the actual taste panels you know support my my view on this and i think if we're going to get more people to uh you know make the transition to a plant-based diet i think these soy burgers and plant meats and plant milks are going to have a, a very important role. Yeah, excellent transition foods there. But as you say, once, you, once you've transitioned, more whole foods is fantastic. Um, now, you mentioned aging before and sarcopenia and muscle mass, and obviously muscles are very important for bone health as well. And there's been a lot of buzz in the plant-based world about you know, our kind of diet and bone health over the last year or so. So in regards to bone mineral density and osteoporosis risk, can soy be a friend or a foe or are they pulling a Switzerland and remaining neutral as far as this is concerned? It's a good question. And, you know, there, there have been some data looking at vegan bone mineral density and vegan fracture risks. And some of those studies have been a little bit discouraging. But I will say that the most recent analysis showed that if your vitamin D and calcium intake is where it should be, then the uh, increased fracture risk is, is disappears, is, is eliminated. You know, the, one of the, the first areas I really began to focus on when I started to study soy was bone health. And the reason is because there was a very popular theory that the certain type of amino acids that are predominant in animal products, the sulfur amino acids, actually cause bone loss. And soy is a very high quality protein, but it's a little bit lower in the sulfur amino acids than animal protein. So the theory was that if you replace soy with animal protein, um, excuse me, if you replace animal protein with soy, that you would excrete less calcium and be good for your bones. You know, some of the early work supported that. That theory has not panned out. 
I think actually protein in general has either a neutral effect or a slight beneficial effect. The real interest has been uh, on the, uh, the focus has been on the isoflavones because they are plant estrogens. When women transit through menopause, they can lose an awful lot of, of bone mass because of the decrease in estrogen. So there were a lot of uh, clinical trials indicating that isoflavones could either and or I should say, uh, slow bone loss and increase bone formation. So that was pretty exciting work. But then there were these four long-term trials that were conducted and only one, of the, one out of the four trials. So these are trials that were two to three years. The shorter trials are looking at oftentimes indicators of, <clears throat> excuse me, indicators of bone health like bone formation and bone breakdown. So they're looking at these markers of bone health, uh, whereas what you really wanna look at, of course, is, is bone mass and eventually fracture risk, but that takes a, a very long trial to look at fracture risk or, or actually number of fractures. So only one out of the four trials actually showed that isoflavones were beneficial. So I, unfortunately, I had so many beautiful slides that I showed in my presentation and I, I really don't discuss that area very much, but the most recent stati statistical analysis looking at the shorter term studies was very encouraging. So I would say I'm on the fence right now. It's definitely not harmful. And also the calcium from uh, calcium fortified soy milk and calcium set tofu is as well absorbed as the calcium is from cow's milk. And that's interesting because, you know, there are components in plants, uh, phytate and oxalate, that inhibit the absorption of, of calcium. And soy is really high in both phytate and oxalate, and yet you still see the absorption of calcium from tofu and fortified soy milk being as good as the absorption is from, from cow's milk. And then it's high quality protein. So I think soy can have a beneficial role for bone health. I'm just not sure what's going on with the isoflavones because the data are very inconsistent. I'm hoping eventually we see some stronger, more robust data, but now we can't reach any conclusions about the effects of isoflavones. And I know there's been a bit of back and forth in the research on this particular topic, but do we have any clear answers yet regarding soy and menopausal symptoms like hot flushes? Yes. I, I have I have a clear answer, I think. And um, so you're correct. If you look at most of the, well, let me just say the first study was actually co conducted by uh, Alice Merkies in 1995 from Australia. So that was the, the first clinical study to actually look at the impact of, of soy on um, uh, hot flashes or hot, do you go hot flushes or flashes there? Whatever you want to run with, we'll run with it. Okay, because most places, Americans do hot flashes, but everywhere else, I think it's hot flushes. So I don't, I don't know what I'll say in the next minute or two. But so, um, so there was some encouraging data, and it was proposed in 1992 by a famous um, isoflavone researcher from Finland, Herman Adlerkreis, that isoflavones may alleviate hot flashes. And this hypothesis was based on the fact that isoflavones possess some estrogen-like activity and that there was a low prevalence of hot flashes among native Japanese women. I don't think the Japanese comparison is, is very relevant. In any event, you gotta do the clinical trials as I've tried to stress. And there have been probably 30 clinical trials that have examined the effect of isoflavones. And the studies were all over the map and most of the reviews and analyses concluded maybe isoflavones will have a, a modest benefit um, or others concluded that the data were sort of equivocal and couldn't really make any definitive conclusion. The problem is, is that there were two types of supplements that were used in these clinical trials. So you can really only use the pills in the clinical trials or most trials use the pills because hot flushes are recorded by the individual woman in the study, by the participant. So it's a subjective assessment. So it's very important that the 
women in these studies are blinded. They, they can't know whether they're consuming soy or a placebo, isoflavones or a placebo. So in this case, it helps to use the pills. And it's also a lot easier. And the hypothesis was that if soy reduces hot flushes, it's going to be because of the isoflavones. In other cases, we don't know what component of soy might be responsible for a hypothesized effect, so you need to use the whole food. But in the case of hot flushes, it was definitely just the isoflavones. So there were two types of isoflavone supplements used. One type of supplement is made from the whole bean, and it has an isoflavone profile. There are three isoflavones in soybeans. And in those pills, the isoflavone composition mimics the isoflavone composition of the bean itself. Another type of supplement was made from a the hypocotyledon portion of the bean, soy germ, that has the three isoflavones, but in a def very different composition. What we did in 2012 was to statistically an analyze the data. Over a thousand women were involved in these studies. And we saw that the pills that had the isoflavone profile that mimicked the isoflavone profile in soybeans were very effective, would lower hot flushes by you know, frequency and severity by over 50%. The pills that were made uh, that had a very different type of isoflavone profile from the bean itself were relatively ineffective. And that was the first analysis to actually sub-analyze the data because these are two different uh, chemical entities. And so I'm pretty convinced that isoflavones alleviate hot flashes and the amount you need is about 50 milligrams per day, and that's not going to mean much to your listeners, but that's the amount provided in about two servings of traditional soy food. So a serving of, so in a, in a serving or of a traditional soy food, there are about three and a half milligrams of isoflavones per gram of protein. So if you consume a cup of soy milk, that's got seven grams of protein and it's made from whole soybeans, seven times three and a half is about 25. So there are about 25 milligrams in a serving of a traditional soy food, could be 100 grams of, of tofu, an ounce of soy nuts. That's enough to alleviate uh, hot flashes according to this uh, data. There just seems to be so many, uh, you know, it's almost like the seven wonders of the world. It's the seven wonders of the soy because there's a lot that we're still trying to understand, trying to learn, but there's so many positives. And one thing I saw uh, in a presentation of yours um, on YouTube, not live, is uh, you mentioned uh, BPA and the ability to protect against the effects of all the absorption of, of BPA. Is that? Can you expand on that? Yeah, not, not much, but th there was one study illustrating that was the case and it also was related to uh, fertility. And so there was actually a concern, believe it or not, this is in some way pretty ironic, that soy may impair fertility. And, you know, the, the flippant answer is, well, you know, what are you saying? China would have 10 billion people instead of 1.4 billion people if they didn't consume soy. You know, it's, it's hard to get too worked up about that. But again, that's, that's you know, first of all, as a bit of an aside, uh, many areas of China consume very little soy. It's it, people are often surprised to learn that, but uh, in Japan, it's it's much more homogeneous. You know, you, where you can the amount of soy you consume in northern Japan is similar to the amount in the south. But China is just a huge country, a lot of different uh, uh, culinary regions, and in some regions, very little soy is consumed. But in any event, you you know you you can't rely on those kind of of data, and there were some concerns that. Um, soy might impair fertility because back in the mid-1990s, there was some research showing that soy increased the length of the menstrual cycle and that people were hypothesizing that it might prevent ovulation. Now, none of these studies showed it prevented ovulation, but there was this concern. Longer cycles are actually associated with a lower risk of breast cancer. Um, so now we've looked at, uh, you know, in men, certainly there's no effect on on um, sperm or semen, seems to know not be any adverse effects in women. They 
You know, they soy doesn't lower estrogen levels in women, has very minor effects on other reproductive hormones. But in this one study, it did show that uh, exposure to the plasticizer, BPA, which is an endocrine disruptor, and we can talk about endocrine disruptors if you like, um, actually was inversely related to fertility among women. So if you had higher amounts of BPA in your urine, you were less likely to become pregnant. Whereas that relationship did not hold if you were actually also consuming isoflavones. So, you know, it's, it's just one study. It, you know, it's, it's an interesting observ observation. I, I really try to uh, base all my statements about soy on the, on the clinical data. I think that observational data, you know, you, if you look at the hierarchy of evidence, you have like in vitro cell studies at the bottom and then animal studies and then observational studies. And there's several kinds of observational studies. Some are much more carry much more credible than others. And then the clinical studies and then uh, statistical analyses of the clinical studies. So at this point, you know, so has been researched pretty heavily over the past 30 years. So generally when I'm making a statement about soy and basing it on the, on the clinical trial data because everything else is, is really just speculation. So if you find an interesting uh, observational finding, you know, say, hey, let's see if we can design a study to, to confirm this finding. So let's talk about soy and heart health for a second here. Um, some of our listeners will be familiar with the portfolio diet and its cholesterol lowering effects. And of course, soy is a traditionally a, a key component of that diet. Um, I'm sure we've also got some quite strict whole food plant-based eaters tuning in that are a little bit hesitant about consuming too much soy because of the fat content in that particular bean compared to other legumes. Um, and then I know the FDA were also reviewing their stance on soy and heart health claims recently. So mixed messages there online, as you stated before, oftentimes it's coming from blogs rather than clinical research. So to date, what does the clinical data actually show regarding soy and heart health? Actually, can I jump in with one question here? Because it's never been brought up, but it's something that's occurred to me when we're talking about other plant-based diets in general. Do you think there's anything to do with the dairy industry or the beef industry also sending out these confusing messages just to add to that all these confusing messages that we're trying to bust here so my my degree is in uh nutrition and i you know I, how do i say this um i i actually don't think so i mean they they promote the dairy they have a lot of money i mean way more money than the plant people do um and they promote their you know, they promote their products. And I'm sure the beef industry and the dairy industry um, won't shy, you know, just not do not shy away from highlighting a study that may negatively portray a vegetarian diet or a vegan diet. Um, but I don't think that the controversy about soy has anything to do with the beef or, or dairy industry. And, you know, from my perspective, I just look at the science and I just try to, uh, my focus really for the past 30 years, I, I was trained as a researcher. I was trained as an animal researcher. I, I uh, don't think animal studies are very helpful. Aside from the ethical considerations, I don't think they provide much insight into human nutrition. Uh, so I spend all my time reading research and I try to convey that research to other health professionals that don't have time to read the research. So that's really where uh, my focus is. I do want to take this opportunity to say I am not a low-fat guy by any stretch of the imagination. I think that emphasis is very much misplaced and I have a concern about it because I think in some cases, it may dissuade people who associate a plant-based diet with a low-fat diet and find that a low-fat diet is not very appealing. I, and so I, I don't like the emphasis on low-fat uh, low diets. I don't think the data are supportive of low-fat diets. I think what matters is the type of fat that you uh, consume. In the... Um, it's true. It's interesting. The soybean is actually a, a very high in fat. You know, it's an oil seed. It's different from some of the 
uh, other pulses or legumes or, or beans. Soybeans get, you know, like 40% of their calories from fat. Most beans are almost fat-free. And I eat a lot of beans. You know, you can have a happy life without soy. I eat a lot of legumes in general, but I do eat a couple servings of soy every day, in part because it's so ridiculously convenient. I mean, there's so many different forms of, of soy. And find a, and in fact, find, I find myself sometimes thinking, you know, I'm relying too much on soy because I, I'm being lazy and, I, you know, I, we need to eat some other types of beans. Every food has something to, to, to offer. Um, so I'm not a low-fat guy, and I, I, in fact, I just wrote a paper on soybean oil, and I can send you that if you're interested. You know, I think the polyunsaturated fat uh, lowers risk of, of heart disease, reduces blood cholesterol levels, doesn't increase inflammation. That's a that's a um, misunderstanding. Doesn't increase uh, oxidative uh, stress, and also with some of the soy products, of course, that like the portfolio folks use at the University of Toronto, they're often using the isolate and some of these um, more processed products that can be much lower in fat. The soy protein itself lowers blood cholesterol levels. So the first clinical study showing that soy protein lowered blood cholesterol was published in 1967. And then in 1995, a statistical analysis of all the clinical trials was published in the New England Journal of Medicine. It showed about a 13% reduction, which was a huge amount because that was before the widespread use of statins, which are the drugs that are very effective at lowering cholesterol levels. Four years later, the, the U.S. Food and Drug Administration approved the health claim for soy foods and heart disease based on the cholesterol-lowering effects of soy protein. Over the years, the cholesterol-lowering effects have been challenged. The FDA is currently actually reviewing the evidence in support of the health claim. I would say if you look at the data, the most recent analysis, and it actually was done from the portfolio folks, people, David Jenkins and colleagues who published a meta-analysis in 2019, showing about a, th a little 3 to 4% reduction in cholesterol in response to soy protein. Now, that's not a huge effect. That's why he uses the portfolio diet, because you use soy protein and, and nuts and fruits and vegetables and, and phytosterols and you know lots of fiber, and you can get 20, 30% reductions in cholesterol, which is really what you need if you're gonna meaningful reduce, meaningfully reduce your risk of, of heart disease. So I think that soy has a modest cholesterol-lowering effect. It's important. Remember also, if you are an omnivore and you end up eating soy foods instead of some foods that are high in saturated fat, you're going to get a, a double benefit. You're going to get the benefit of the change in fatty acid content of your diet, also a direct effect of soy protein. And in fact, the one and only David Jenkins, an amazing researcher, has been doing, I mean, he, he David Jenkins from the University of Toronto has been publishing amazing research for 40 years. I mean, he was, he published, he published research on the glycemic index in 1981. I mean, my gosh, what a, what an amazing individual. So I, sorry for that uh, digression there, but, um, and, and so I, I, the other thing is that there is some evidence that at least in postmenopausal women, the isoflavones directly improve the health of the arteries. So I, I think there's soy has a lot going for it when it comes to um, heart health, but it's just one food that you you know would include in a in a heart healthy diet. And, and generally, diets that reduce risk of heart disease are the same diets that reduce risk of other chronic diseases as well. And what about the effects of soy protein and isoflavones on thyroid function, for example? I understand that's been studied for quite a long time as well. Any concerns there for either healthy individuals or potentially those with hypothyroidism? No, no. And thanks for asking that question. So the first animal study looking at the effects of soy and thyroid function was published in 1933. So almost 100 years now. And I'll, I'll try to be real quick with this. The, the clinical studies show in people with normal functioning thyroids, absolutely no adverse effects on thyroid function. This was also the conclusion of the European Food Safety Authority and the German Research Foundation and a meta-analysis published in 2019, a statistical analysis of the clinical trials showed no adverse effects 
or no effects, I should just say, on the two main thyroid hormones, T3 and T4. There was a concern based on a British study published in 2011 that if you had a condition called subclinical hypothyroidism, so you have normal thyroid function and then low thyroid function where you would actually need to take medication, there's a condition in between that called subclinical hypothyroidism. And this one study published in 2011 showed that if you consume soy, you are more likely to go from this sub subclinical condition to overt hypothyroidism, so low, low thyroid function where you would need medication. But then it was repeated in 2018, and they used a larger dose, and they found no ill effects. And in fact, what they found was not only no effects in thyroid function, but when you look at both studies, they found a reduction in blood pressure and a reduction in inflammation. And the final comment will be that, so I think people with that condition can clearly consume soy. The, the remaining issue is if you actually are on thyroid medication, can you consume soy? And food in general, calcium supplements, fiber supplements, all many drugs and herbs inhibit the absorption of the medication. So if you are on medication, you can still consume soy foods. It's just it's advised that you separate the time at which you take the medication from the time at which you consume soy. And that would be true for all foods. So you generally take the medication on a, in a fasting condition, and then you would wait a while before you consume soy if you were having it for, for breakfast. So some of our guests um, from previous episodes that we have have contacted us since listening and had a little bit of concern about soy and its potential for being an endocrine disruptor. Um, could you maybe expand on that topic for us a little bit? Yes, I, I would love to, because that topic has actually recently occupied about two years of my life. So in, in brief, you know, an endocrine disruptor is a compound. It could be synthetic, natural, you know, something in the pollution, um, a synthetic chemical, foods we eat and the water we drink. These are compounds that in brief can sort of disrupt the hormonal balance. And there was uh, concerns based on animal studies. And I want to emphasize that they were based on animal studies that the isoflavones could be endocrine disruptors. So I was recently a co-author of a, of a paper with nine other soy experts. It's about 30,000 words, hundreds of references that looked at this um, concern. And fortunately, as I mentioned before, in the case of soy, you have hundreds of clinical studies. You with other, like with BPA, which we mentioned before, bisphenol A, which is an endocrine disruptor, you can't give BPA to subject to, you can't use it in a clinical trial, but you can use soy foods and isoflavones and you have all the observational studies as well. And we literally looked at every concern that was raised about soy from puberty onset to effects in utero, consuming soy during pregnancy, you know, to male feminization, breast cancer, thyroid function, um, endometrial cancer. And we concluded this. This paper is open access, so anybody can download it if they if they have the uh, are so inclined and have the time. And we we concluded that soy is neither soy nor isoflavones are endocrine disruptors. Um, I think we very satisfactorily have uh, addressed that concern. You know, subtle differences in compounds can result in huge differences in physiological effects. So if you think of something like um, cholesterol and phytosterols, so phytosterols are cholesterol's cousins. They're found in plants and cholesterol is found in, in animal foods. Those two chemicals have almost identical chemical structures. And yet, if you take large amounts of dietary cholesterol, you're going to raise your blood cholesterol levels modestly. If you consume phytosterols a couple of grams per day, you're going to lower your cholesterol 10%. 10%. So small differences in chemical structure can have huge differences in physiological effects. So when you look at, well, isoflavones may look like other endocrine disruptors, and therefore we shouldn't be concerned, you know, that's not a reasonable, um, that's logical, but then you have to look at the clinical studies. And when you look at the clinical studies, 
you know, the evidence is really overwhelming. There are a couple of areas where I would I would like more research to be conducted. Relatively little research has been conducted involving children because it's harder than harder than heck, you know, to actually conduct a clinical trial involving uh, children. I will say that there have been six studies looking at the cholesterol lowering effects of soy protein in children. Most of the three of them have been from Austria, and they all show a cholesterol lowering effect. I mentioned before that uh, there's some pretty exciting data indicating that if girls consume soy, they will reduce their risk of breast cancer later on in life. So I recommend that that girls and boys consume soy. Um, the two most important studies for puberty onset were conducted by Seventh-day Adventist researchers here in the States. Against Adventists, about 40% of Adventists are vegetarians. Those are very reassuring about uh, puberty onset. So I think I think the data are are pretty clear, and I'm I'm glad to be able to to emphasize that point. And I would recommend those who are really interested to read read the paper. Yeah, when you say it was comprehensive, it really was. It was 63 pages long, including references. So, like bedtime reading. We'll put a link to that in the show notes. Actually, it's it, it is. You know, like you say, if you've got the time and the head really for it, thorough. but even just to scan and just read the abstracts and 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 the outcomes is it's it's quite uh, reassuring. You know, and I'll, I'll tell you, sorry for interrupting. If if some of your listeners have um, some questions, if they if they want to email you, I'd be if you want to forward them to me, I'd be happy to to uh, address those. Oh, brilliant! Thank you so much. Sure. Really so generous. On on that note, you've spoken about the benefits of a a serving of of a, of, of soy a day. What is a serving, and does it is there a difference between fermented and unfermented? So you know, if we're talking about tofu versus say tempeh. Yeah, good good question. So most of the clinical studies intervene with an amount of isoflavones that's provided by about two servings. Now, one serving is better than none. And, you know, if you're going from a, a, a really heavy carnivorous type diet, you know, two, two servings will be a challenge, but I would like to see people eat, uh, consume two servings per day. And when I refer to a, a serving, um, I, I'm referring to, you know, a cup of soy milk is one serving, that's 250 milliliters, um, basically about 100 grams of tofu, which is what I would say like a half a cup, uh, an ounce of soy nuts. So it's the general serving sizes that you know you would use in Australia or the or the USDA would list list for other foods. And I think you know two servings per day is ideal. Now, I will point out that the many of the proposed benefits are thought to be due to isoflavones, so the alleviation of hot flushes, maybe bone health, uh, effects on the arteries, even for breast cancer prevention, it's thought to be due to isoflavones. Some of the, most of the meat substitutes are very low in isoflavones because during processing, as much as 90% of the isoflavones can be lost. Now, I still eat those products all the time because they're wonderful sources of of protein, but if you're strictly shooting for isoflavones, um, that's that's not the ideal choice. And in terms of the type of food, so you know, at a personal level, I would say tempeh is my favorite food, and I've been favorite soy food, and I've been fortunate to uh, uh, be in uh, Indonesia uh, several times where it's really inexpensive and you can get it everywhere. Tends to be more expensive and, you know, I don't know, at least in the States, it's relatively expensive, but it goes a long way. You know, it has a great taste, great texture. It's got the the whole bean. There was um, that one activist group that I mentioned almost an hour ago now um, that had a lot to do with uh, disparaging the reputation of soy, you know, promoted this myth that, Asians only eat fermented soy. And the amazing thing about that is it's so easily uh, proven wrong, and yet they still continue to say that. Now, I'm excluding soy sauce because that's a condiment, not not a food. But most soy consumed in the world is actually consumed in unfermented form because the ethnic Chinese, so folks in China, Singapore, Hong Kong, you know, do not really consume much in the way of fermented soy products. Their main so, uh, foods are tofu and soy milk. In Japan, it's about 50-50. So tofu, 
for unfermented and for fermented a product called natto, which isn't really consumed too much outside of Japan, and miso, which is a you know an excellent uh, food. So most soy consumed around the world is an unfermented form. Um, I think there's probably very little difference in terms of health effects. There are some changes that occur with fermentation that one could speculate may be a health advantage, but you know the data are pretty uh, flimsy, and you still get the protein. You know, regardless of whether it's fermented or unfermented, you're still going to get isoflavones. The isoflavones are in a slightly different form when they're fermented. I don't think that's very relevant. It's often said that the um, protein is more digestible from fermented products, but the protein from tofu and soy milk and soy protein isolate, the concentrated forms of protein, really highly digestible, more than 90%, which is why soy is such a high quality protein. So I, you know, to me, eat the food that you like, that you enjoy. So that has been really fascinating. Just to close out the episode, could you give us a little bit of an inside scoop on some of the upcoming projects that you're working on? You've got some fascinating work on the go in regards to skin health and wrinkles. I'm very interested in that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Most people are. Um, you know, it's funny because you can talk about heart disease and osteoporosis and all these and the cognitive function. Well, that's a big one. And then when you mention wrinkles, it's like. What was that? What was that? Yeah. Is that you know, how strong the volume's just gone up, and now they're listening. Yeah, yeah, it, it's it's funny. Um, so the evidence is actually pretty darn intriguing. So first of all, recognize that the skin has estrogen receptors. It and the type of there are two types of estrogen receptors. It's been shown in at least one study the type of receptors in the skin estrogen receptors in the skin that dominate is the type of estrogen receptor that isoflavones really like. So there's a basis for speculating that if you consume isoflavones, they're going to eventually make their way to the skin, bind to the estrogen receptors and exert a beneficial effect. Now, interestingly, if you Google soy and skin creams, you're going to get pages and pages of products that actually include soy for topical administration. But, you know, I'm a nutritionist, they may work, but I'm a, I'm a nutritionist, so I'm concerned about the effect of consuming soy foods and isoflavones. There have been eight studies that have looked at the effects of isoflavones on skin health, most of which focus specifically on wrinkles. All of those studies have shown beneficial effects, but there's a huge caveat. All of those studies have had design limitations which prevent any kind of definitive conclusions from being made. But the evidence was sufficiently strong for the Soy Nutrition Institute, which is an organization that I um, worked for, has actually funded a two-year study to the cost of about 400,000 US dollars, looking specifically at the effects of uh, isoflavone-rich soy on skin health. And I would say that, um, if the results are robust, and we'll know in another year, maybe less, if the result, re, results are robust, those results combined with the existing literature will allow people like me to pretty, pretty strongly conclude or recommend uh, soy for, for skin health. So I'm, I'm pretty excited about that, and I'm, I'm optimistic. Otherwise, the institution would not have, the institute would not have uh, funded a study you know, for $400,000. So yeah, it, it looks pretty good. We have a couple of others in the works looking at uh, the effects of, of soybean oil on uh, liver disease and metabolic function, also some soy foods. Th those are a little bit more difficult to, you know, talk about in, in a, a short period of time. So the skin study is really the one that I'm, I'm most interested in. There's also some data for cognitive function. Uh, we don't have any, I'm not aware of any studies that are underway, but there have been a, quite a few studies that have shown an improvement in visual and short-term memory. So um, I, I think, you know, it's hard to definitively prove things. You know that from doing your show. Uh, I mean, it's hard to do good clinical studies. And there is people differ. And when 
you're using intervening with uh, diet or nutrition. The studies are often very small in size. So you've got the large observational studies, you know, involving tens of thousands of people, but they're not designed to show cause and effect. So you, you take an observational finding and then you test it clinically. And those studies cost, you know, can cost millions of dollars. And, you know, you can, you know, you have to worry about compliance. If you were to ask um, Australians who don't consume soy to start to consume two cups of soy milk or two servings of tofu per day, how long, you know, what would compliance be like a year later? And if you're looking at some of these chronic disease endpoints, you're, you know, you need to go out for a long period of time. So it's difficult. These studies are often small, people vary. So you have to take the totality of the data. And that's what, that's what I try to do when I present, you know, present information about soy and what I've tried to do here. Yeah, it's quite obvious that you take the hierarchy of evidence into account. So thank you for being so thorough with everything you've shared. It's been absolutely fascinating. And on behalf of all our listeners, including myself and Emma, a big sigh of relief. Uh, soy is going to continue being consumed. For me personally, it's soy milk in my porridge. It's, uh, you know, I use it in my baking, tofu, tempeh. I love having that as an alternative when eating out. So continue as per normal. You know, we've, we've covered so many health benefits, uh, certainly busted a lot of myths, which is important. And now this new thing, longevity, I mean, these wrinkles, they're going to be gone. So I'll, I'll increase my servings. Um, but no, thank you so, so much, uh, Mark, for being so forthcoming, so, so accessible, so readily available to come onto the show and share such a wealth of knowledge, such an important topic that I think this should have been one of the very first episodes we ever had uh, because it is very commonly brought up in a lot of presentations that both Emma and I do when we interact with a lot of groups of people. It's always but what about this? What about that? And it's always relating to soy. So thank you so much for really just shedding a lot of, um, I was going to swear on this, but I won't so kids can still listen to the podcast, but a lot of the BS out there um, and instilling a lot of confidence in such powerful food. And just lastly, when, when referring to the, um, the blue zone areas uh, of, of the world, the Okinawan diet is very rich in foods that's made with soy, such as tofu and miso, and, and they consume an average of about 85 grams per day of soy. So, you know, one of the highest rates of centenarians, and they're consuming soy without a problem. There's no there's no reason why we can't. So thank you so much for coming onto the show. No, oh, thank you for giving this opportunity. Thank you for listening to the Lentil Intervention Podcast. If you found this interesting, make sure you subscribe and share it with your friends. 